If you've got your Bibles, turn to the book of Romans. Only kidding. Luke, the book of Luke. We are going through the book of Luke systematically, verse by verse, taking our good old time, uh, just breaking this out. It's not about uh, giving an impressive speech. It's not about being entertaining. It's about learning from the Word. This is what we do together on the weekends. We want to come together. We want to worship the Lord together and then just open this book, which is our constitution as kingdom people, uh, and just ask God to teach us and to instruct us and motivate us that our lives may increasingly take on that kingdom quality, that countercultural kingdom quality. So this is what we're doing here, uh, just, just breaking this open. I'm going to move on to verses in chapter 1, verses 26 through 34, and I'm also going to read verse 38. And I want to entitle this message, Just a Nobody from Nowhereville. Just a Nobody from Nowhereville. In fact, before I even get into this, I want to pray. Could I get some people around the auditorium who will keep me covered in prayer as the message is going forth? In the back. Need some covering in the back. Thank you. Thanks. Let's pray. Lord, we're just gathered together as your kingdom people, and we want to, lo- we want to learn. We want to grow. Uh, and we know, God, that it's not by impressive human speech or anything like that 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 growth happens. It's by your Spirit. And so we ask, Lord, that your Spirit, your Holy Spirit, your presence in this place, the Shekinah glory, would, would inhabit these words and make it come alive, God. Write it into our minds and hearts. Confront strongholds, presuppositions. Let the coin drop in the slot for some people here this morning where they really, 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 maybe for the first time realize it's not about a religion. It's about a revolution, and they're, they're the revolutionaries. Uh, God, open up our minds and open up our hearts and transform us. Otherwise, this is a monumental waste of time. Uh, we don't want speech. We want, we want in a kingdom encounter here in the next 40 minutes. Let it happen. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen. We are in th- this passage that we have now spent about three months on. Uh, we're all, all the way up to verse 26. Uh, we're seeing the first rumblings of the revolution. Rumblings of the revolution. Uh, we've seen Gideon has appeared to Zechariah and, and Elizabeth, and there's going to be another encounter here. Uh, the first rumblings are really two angelic visits and two supernatural v- births. The first supernatural visitation was to Elizabeth and Zechariah, and their supernatural birth was uh, about John the Baptist, who's going to be a forerunner of the Messiah. The second supernatural uh, angelic encounter and supernatural birth is what we're finding here in this passage, and it's to Mary. And whereas the first supernatural birth was supernatural because the people were too old to have children, in this case, it's, it's going to be because this young lady called, named Mary is not going to have any sexual relationships with uh, a man. So we start in verse 26, and I'm reading out of the TNIV version. It says, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, uh, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, who was a descendant of David. Stop there. Let's just, let's just break this apart a little bit. Uh, Nazareth was a very, very small town in Galilee. Galilee is about a, a day and a half to two days journey uh, uh, up from Judea, where uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah were. Now the angel goes about two days journey north, and we're in Galilee. And in Galilee, there's a little town the town of of Nazareth. 
Now, Nazareth was so small that it didn't make it on most of the ancient registrars of, uh, registrars of towns in Galilee. In fact, up until about 100 years ago, or maybe even 70 years ago, it was a common claim on the part of Bible critics that the gospel authors made up this name Nazareth because in all their archaeology, they couldn't find any reference to Nazareth. And so they assumed, well, the Bible must be just making that up. Now, why a Bible author would make up a name of a town, they didn't explain. But their idea is that if you don't have evidence for it, the Bible must be wrong. But you know what, folks? The Bible's right. And in the last 70 years, we found six or seven references to Nazareth uh, in archaeology. Now, it was, it was so small, it didn't make it on most of the, on, on most of the major uh, registrars, but it was there. We're talking about a very small podunk town. Joseph, it says he was a descendant of David. And that's important because we, we know the Messiah from the Old Testament. We know the Messiah uh, is, it needs to be a legal descendant of David. Joseph will not be the, the biological father of Jesus, but he is the legal father of Jesus. So Jesus is a legal descendant of David, which, which is what's necessary if he's going to be the Messiah. And then it says that Mary was pledged to Joseph. What you need to know, a little background on that, is that in the ancient Jewish world, women were pledged to a man um, about a year or two before they were actually being married. In fact, as with many cultures, most of marriages were arranged. The woman never had any say in who they married, and often the man didn't have a say either, though in some, sometimes he was given veto power. Uh, but but that, that's about it. The, the marriages were arranged. Um, so she was pledged to this man, and the man apparently accepted the man's Joseph. And then what would happen is the man would go away for a year or two and build a house and, and secure, you know, whatever was necessary to have a family. Uh, and the wife would stay under the guardianship of the father. And then, then they would, would get together and that's when they'd have the real wedding. And so they were officially married. But the pledge was legally binding. So in Matthew, it says that Joseph thought about uh, divorcing his wife. You had to a dowry was paid when this pledge was made, and the documents were signed when this pledge was made. And the only way to get out of it was by, uh, for the man, the woman had no right to do this, but the man had to file uh, a bill of divorce and state his, his uh, reasons and, and whatnot. Um, and what's really interesting is that the average age, we know from, from records, the average age of the woman being pledged in first century Judaism was about 12 years old. Sometimes, it could be as early as 10 and uh, the average marriage was around the age of 13. So here is Mary, uh, about 12 or 13 years old. And, and uh, she's living in Nazareth. Okay, let's move on. The virgin's name was Mary. And just incidentally, Mary was the single most common name for a Jewish girl in the first century, Miriam. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Next verse. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Now see, here's the thing. Mary is, is here, Gabriel, the mighty Gabriel, one of the few angels named in the Bible, Gabriel shows up. And Mary, Mary's shocked by this. Uh, what is this? Why? I'm a nobody living in Nowhereville. And what is this mighty angel doing showing up on my front door saying, saying, you're highly favored, you're blessed, the Lord is with you. What does this mean? So she's greatly troubled. Next verse. The angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary. For once again, I'll tell you, you have found favor with God. 
You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. And we'll unpack that verse uh, sometime later. But right now, you just need to know is that what the angel is saying, and a good Jewish peasant girl would get this, is that uh, this child you're going to have is going to be the Messiah. He's, he's going to fulfill all the things that were said about the Messiah in the Old Testament. And then in verse 38, there's a little discussion in the next couple passages that we'll look at later on. But uh, it, it becomes clear to Mary that this conception is going to happen by means other than the natural means. It's going to be supernatural. But she ends up saying in verse 38, she goes, this, she goes here am I, the servant of the Lord. I don't, I don't get this. I don't understand this. It's kind of freaking me out, actually. You know, marriage is scary enough, and having a baby is scary enough, and now you're telling me all this. So she doesn't get it. She's troubled by it, and yet she says, here I am, the servant of the Lord. That's who I am. Let it be with me according to your word. And then the angel departed from her. The thing about this is, is, is this. Um, in the flow of the narrative, in the flow of Luke's narrative, this is the most surprising thing we've confronted this far. Now, whenever Gabriel shows up, it's kind of a monumental time because he only shows up in the biblical record when, there's, uh, when, when, when history is going to change course. He's, he's, you know, kind of an almond of things that are going to radically change. So whenever Gabriel shows up, it, it's a pretty stupendous thing. But it's more surprising that he shows up to Mary than when he shows up to, to Zechariah. Zechariah is a, a priest. He's a holy guy. He's an old man. He's working in the temple. Uh, you almost expect, you know, if an angel's going to show up, you show up to people like that. That's not too, too surprising, really. But who is this Mary? What's up with Mary? Uh, we're not even given any lineage. Uh, her pedigree's not given. Uh, she's a nobody living in Nowhereville. Even her name is not extraordinary. It's the most common name you can have in, in the first century. Why would Gabriel show up there? And that's the question all the readers would be asking. What's up with Mary? Luke doesn't even give us any credentials that she had. Uh, he doesn't even try to make it understandable. Why, we, why, why Mary? If he would have said something like, and in all the land God found no one quite as righteous as Mary. Well, okay, now we know why Gabriel showed up, but he doesn't say that. Never was there a young lady as virtuous as Mary. Uh, you know, Mary's father was, was very famous. Uh, Mary never missed a synagogue service. Mary, whatever. But Luke doesn't mention anything as to why Mary is given this honor. Here's this little tiny peasant girl in this peasant town, 12, 13 years old, and the angel Gabriel shows up. And the only thing she's got going for her, so far as we can tell in the text, is that she doesn't have the good sense to say, find somebody else. <laughs> That's about it. Okay, I, I don't know how this is going to happen, but, but uh, let it be unto me. And see, I think this, this says something spectacular about the revolution that's beginning to take place in this world. Uh, a young teenage girl is going to become, a little peasant teenage girl in a little town that nobody's really heard of, is going to become the doorway by which God is going to enter world history as a human person. Uh, of all, all the people he could have chosen, uh, of all the dignitaries he could have gotten, all the important people, all the holy people, all the righteous people, all the smart people, there's a lot of people he could have chosen. 
Uh, contemporary with Mary would have been Caiaphas, that magnificent high priest. And there's a multitude of religious Pharisees that he could have chosen. And, and there's Herod, who's, king of the, who's the, the governor of the Jews, and Pilate, who's the, governor, the, the Roman governor, and, and there's Caesar Augustus, who's the emperor of the whole thing. And there's smart people like Philo of Alexander. There's all these people around who are contemporary with Mary, who God could have chosen, but he passes all of them by in order to zero in on this little girl. And broaden the scope a little bit. You're talking about God as he's looking at the planet. There's a mighty empire of China going on and Persia going on and India going on. There's all these magnificent, powerful, intellectual, holy people. And it makes sense to talk to them. But God zeroes in his scope on this little tiny town, tiny, tiny, tiny little town that even other humans don't notice, and zeroes in on this little tiny peasant girl with the most common name you could possibly have, and boom, that's going to be the means by which he's going to come into the world. It says a whole lot about the revolution that's taking place in this world. It means this. This is going to be, a, this is going to be an odd revolution. It's going to be a revolution where nothing that you think should happen is going to happen. It, God operates according to his own rules, not according to ours. It's a, it's a, it's a funky revolution. Uh, a revolution where you've got to call into question all your normal categories. All the things that you think make sense, your common sense, your presuppositions, you've got to be willing to call all these categories into question because this kingdom, this screwy, weird kingdom uh, that starts with this unknown person in this unknown town, this is going to bust all of our normal presuppositions. It's the kind of kingdom, as Jesus said later on, where, where the first shall be last and the last shall be first. It's where everything that you think is, is, is established in this world, whatever you think is right in this world, well, it's, it's, it's going to be opposite all that. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. The humble will be exalted, and the exalted will be humbled. The rich we're going to call poor, and the poor we're going to call rich. Everything's going to be reversed, topsy-turvy. Those you thought were foolish, well, you know what? In this kingdom, they're wise. And those you thought were so wise, well, you know what? In this kingdom, they're foolish. Uh, the despised will be honored and the honored will be despised and, and the weak shall be called strong and those that you think are strong will be called re weak. And in this kingdom, Jesus says, it's better to serve than to be served. What kind of weird, screwy kingdom is that? And in this kingdom, it's better to give than to get. What kind of screwy kingdom is that? And in this kingdom, it's more important to be faithful than it is to be effective and pragmatic and practical. And in this kingdom, the people will be so weird, they're going to trust self-sacrificial acts of love to transform the world. And they're going to put more trust in Calvary-like acts of love than they're going to put in, in laws and in policies and in bullets and in bombs. Uh, they're going to trust that love, Calvary-like self-sacrificial love, will, will take over the world. This kingdom is a weird kind of a kingdom. It's where people trust power under more than they trust power over. It's a bizarre kingdom where they love their enemies. They actually do, do good to their enemies. They pray for their enemies. They don't retaliate against their enemies. They turn the other cheek. They serve their enemies. This is a weird kind of kingdom. We're not in Kansas anymore. Uh, we've entered Alice in Wonderland. Uh, uh, take off your old spectacles and put on the new kingdom spectacles because everything you thought was up is down and everything you thought was down is up. Whatever you thought was front, it's back and whatever you thought was back, it's front. This is an upside-down, rearranged, odd, Alice in Wonderland kind of kingdom. God, in this kingdom, God shows forth his power by letting himself get crucified on a cross. What kind of bizarre revolution are you talking about? 
In this kingdom, God shows forth his greatness by being born as a little baby to an unwed Jewish girl and being wrapped in swaddling clothes and put in an animal smelly filled barn. In this kingdom, God shows forth his holiness by letting himself become cursed. Think about that. In this kingdom, God shows forth his beauty by the horrifying ugliness of Calvary. In this kingdom, God shows forth his love by letting himself get hated. In this kingdom, God shows forth his victory by letting himself get defeated. And the whole thing starts with this unknown nobody in Nowhereville getting pregnant without having any kind of sexual relationships. Folks, we're not in Kansas anymore. We've entered the twilight zone. This is the upside down, odd kind of a kingdom where all of our natural presuppositions have got to be called into question. Now, this has a lot of applications. If we're going to think kingdom-wise, we've got to be willing to rearrange all the furniture in, in, in the cerebral room between our ears. This is why the Bible says that the natural man can't understand the things of God. They're foolishness to him. A natural person with their natural reasoning can't get this. But once you get it, if you're willing to suspend all your natural thinking, this thing starts to look more and more and more beautiful. I want to apply in two, in two particular ways here this morning. Number one, it means two different things for us. In the kind of kingdom where a Mary, a little peasant girl, a little nobody living in Nowhereville can be chosen to do the most incredible thing in all of world history, in a kingdom that starts like that, you've got to know that in this kingdom revolution, nobody is a nobody. In this kingdom revolution, there are no nobodies. Now, this, this is just totally weird uh, because in the world, in the way the world thinks, in the kingdom of the world, uh, there's, there are nobodies and there are somebodies. You know, there are people who got it and there are people who don't got it. There are people, the have and the have-nots. Uh, there are people who've got potential and those we think don't have any potential and those who are gifted and those who aren't gifted and those who got charisma and those who are boring and those who are smart and those who aren't so smart and those who got the money and those who don't have the money and the world's full of those kind of distinctions. There are, there are nobodies and there are somebodies. And see, uh, what happens is, is when you start a religion on those kind of presuppositions, you still got somebodies and you got nobodies and now what you do is you get the somebodies to uh, be the professional religious people. This is pagan religion. This is the essence of pagan religion. We're going to have the charismatic people, the smart people, the trained people, the, this, that, or the other thing. They'll be the religious specialists, and we declare them to be closer to God than everyone else, and they'll do the religious perfunctory duties, and when they pray, it counts more than our prayers, and they're sort of the holy peace, the mediators between God and human beings, and the rest of us losers, us nobodies, our job is sort of just to support them and give money to them because they're the professionals. That's called pagan religion, and, and when you slap the title of Christianity onto it, it doesn't make it less pagan. Right. Uh, now, we're, I, I stepped on someone's toe right there, but you know, just try, try to be open to it. Just try to be open to it. You see, in the kingdom of God, if we're thinking kingdom of God, not kingdom of the world, we're in Alice in Wonderland, Twilight Zone, up to upside down weirdness here. But all bets are off. All bets are off. Because, see, in the kingdom of God, uh, and this is what you get throughout the New Testament. It, it's, it's not about who's got and who doesn't got. It's not about who's a nobody and who's a somebody. Who's got charisma and who doesn't have charisma. Who's smart and who's not smart. Who's trained and who's not trained. Who's religious and who's not religious. It's not about that. It's not that. Not, look at how this thing started. It's not about that at all. You look at Mary. She's got zero going for her. <laughs> Nothing going for her. Because it's not about Mary. It's about what God can do through Mary. And the only thing he asks of Mary is, are you willing? Will you go along with this program? 
It means that in this kingdom of God, if you're willing, you got to know this. You're not a nobody, you're a somebody, and God's got an important role for you to play. In this kingdom, if your heart is willing, there's a role that you're supposed to play because our gifts will be different, our roles will be different, our functions will be different, certainly. But they're all equally important in God's eyes because everybody's supposed to be a revolutionary. In this weird upside-down kingdom, everybody is a minister. Everybody is a priest. Everybody is a warrior. Everybody's got a calling, and everybody's got a purpose. And the world may say that you're a nobody, but that's kingdom of the world thinking. I'm talking kingdom of God. A great uh, example of this is found in, in, in the Old Testament uh, in, in Judges chapter 6. Here's the situation. The Israelites, the enemies of the Israelites and the enemies of God are all circled around Israel and Israel's in a bad situation. The Midianites are encamping around them and they've cut off the food supply and things are looking bleak. And Israel sent out their mighty people, their mighty warriors, their smartest people, their soldiers. They sent out those folks and none of them could even make a dent in the Midianite army. The things are looking very bleak. And then we come upon this kid. He was a kid named Gideon. And here's what it says in Judges chapter 6. It says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak at Oprah. That's where Oprah got her name, by the way. <laughs> See, this, it's, it's so important to come to church and learn important Bible facts. Where did Oprah Winfrey get her name? Well, you just found out. At the oak at uh, Oprah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, and his son, listen, and his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press in order to hide it from the Midianites. Okay, so here's this kid, and he's making oats, but he's doing it in secret because he's afraid of the Midianites. He's scared to death. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty warrior. Gideon, the scared kid, says, But sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all of his wonderful deeds that our ancestors recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has cast us off and given us into the hand of Midian. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. I hereby commission you. <laughs> this kid's got to be freaking out. And he says, But sir... How can I deliver Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. I'm a nobody from nowhere. I mean, Manasseh was already the smallest of all the tribes, and Israel was the weakest of the nations in this conflict they're in. So what, what, what Gideon is saying is, you got, you, you got the wrong guy here. I'm in the weak nation, and I'm in the weakest tribe in the nation. I'm in the weakest clan in that tribe, and I'm the weakest among my clan. I'm the weakest of the weak. I'm a nobody from nowhereville. Uh, what are you talking about? But see, God calls him a mighty warrior. Go forth in this might of yours. Because God sees something in Gideon that Gideon can't see. Gideon's been conditioned by his culture. He's, his experience has informed him uh, about who he is, and his pe pedigree has informed him about who he is, and his socialization has informed him about who he is. And, and in terms of that cultural kingdom of the world conditioning, he ain't no mighty warrior. 
But see, God sees something different in Gideon, and God sees something different in you, and God sees something different in me. The kingdom of God is, is a way different kind of a world. The world may call you a nobody, but God says, uh, from my perspective, you're an important somebody. The world may say that you're weak, but God's saying to you, with my presence in your life, you're strong. The, the world may say that you, that you don't have the right pedigree, but God says, I don't care about pedigree. You're a child of God, and that gives you the right pedigree because you belong to my pedigree. You know, get rid of your kingdom of the world thinking. The world may say that you're average. You're just mediocre. You're just run of the mill, but God looks at you, and he says, I don't do average, and I don't do mediocre, and I don't do run of the mill. I made you unique. You are fearfully and wonderfully made, and you got a unique role to play in the kingdom. Step into it. Will you be willing? Your own experience in the world may say that you're a failure, but God says that with my spirit in your life working with me will overcome the failures and I'll make you into a warrior. And the world may say that by every criteria that counts, you're radically unimportant, but God says you're so important. I got a niche in the revolution carved out just for you. In fact, the world may say that you're a 12-year-old peasant little Jewish girl with the most common name on the planet, living in one of the smallest villages that ever was. Uh, the world may say that, that you're discounted in terms of your importance, but God says, oh, if you're willing, I want, I want to be birthed in you. I want to use you as the doorway by which I bring my presence into this world. You are a warrior. God looks at you and he sees a spirit-filled child, a God with all the potential in the world. He looks at you and he sees a, a, a co-partner, his bride, filled with the Spirit, redeemed, cleansed, fit to be a revolutionary. And that means that each one of us, each one of us here, no ifs, ands, and buts, have got an important role to play in the kingdom. There's no room for sideliners on this thing, folks. There's no room for people sitting on the bench, no room for spectators. There's not even room for cheerleaders, the ones who stand on the side and go, okay, go, 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 go. You know what? In the kingdom of God, we're all on the field. In the kingdom of God, we're all warriors. We're all in the battle. We're all revolutionaries. In the kingdom of God, we all have an active role to play. And the one criteria that matters is, are you willing? Are you willing? Are you willing? Are you willing to do what Mary said? And that is, hear my Lord, uh, let it be uh, unto me according to your word. You know, God has in the last seven, eight years really been increasingly giving us uh, what we're calling a bridge identity. It's just that the bridge metaphor is everything we're about. And uh, th th that's kind of the, the character that God's told us to wear and we want to be bridging people to, to God, you know, just helping them get in touch with God. And we want to be bridging people with one another, tearing down all the walls that divide people and denominations and races and cultures and whatever. But we also need to be bridging people with their, their identity in Christ. Bridging people. There is like this, this, this gulf that a lot of people have between who they think they are and who they really are. And, and our job as a church is to motivate and empower people to step into that calling, the calling that God has for you, the unique role, the niche that, that uh, you're, you're to play. We'll be talking about that uh, in the future, about, about assessing your gifts and finding out wh what you're supposed to be doing. But right now, the point I want to give to you is that, that the crucial question is, are you willing to be the revolutionary that God's called you to be? There are no nobodies in this upside-down Alice in Wonderland, we're not in Kansas anymore kind of kingdom that I'm talking about. Second thing I want us to, to look at is this. It's that the kingdom, the kingdom community has got to be one in which all kingdom of the world distinctions are considered altogether irrelevant. Kingdom community is one in which all the many distinctions the world makes are considered completely irrelevant. So here's the thing. The whole, 
the whole pattern of the world, uh, what Paul calls the pattern of the world, the kingdom of the world, the way society, fallen society is structured, the matrix, if you will, if you remember those sermons uh, about a year ago. The whole thing is structured on the basis of pe people eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which as I've shown in a number of different sermons, is, it's the original sin, and it, it really is, is, is about us getting life from our judgment. We're addicted to judgment. Which means that we instinctively, uh, according to our fallen nature, we prioritize, we categorize, we file, uh, we stereotype, we put people into these neat boxes. And, and we, uh, you know, just, just addictively, you know, file people in terms of whether they're important or not important or, or whatnot. And it's so intrinsic to us. This is why reconciliation is a front burner issue and it's going to have to stay a front burner issue because we so easily lapse into our fallen presuppositions and stereotypes. It's, it, this is so inside of us that even when you want to intentionally conscious get it out of you, you'll find yourself slipping into it. A couple years ago, I was, I was up here um, at the, after one of the services and there's a lady talking to me and if I can do the world's categorization here for a moment just to make a point, she was, by the world's standards, an ordinary lady. Uh, nothing, nothing really spectacular about her. Um, she seemed rather simple. She looked poor. Um, and she talked very slow and, and a little bit incoherent. And she came up and she had a problem. And the problem she had uh, was not really, you know, high up on the apocalyptic scale. Uh, she was living with her sister and her sister wasn't sharing with her. And she was just really, really mad and wanted me to help with her sister in her relationship. So it's like, you know, this isn't earthquake, sky is falling, terrible stuff. But I'm talking with her. And there's kind of a line as there sometimes is. Then, a person walks up that I had rec I recognized from a few other meetings I'd been in. And this person was a very wealthy person, a mover and shaker uh, in Christianity. Uh, it has got the potential to do a lot of things because of their connections and their money and whatnot. It comes up all dressed in a suit and whatever. And uh, kind of just walks right up next to me. Because I think a lot of times people who, who are in those sorts of positions, they kind of just assume that they you know, can walk right up to you and don't have to, to wait in line. Um, now, here's what happened. And I am all for, it, this, it, it is wise to network with people who are good at making money. That's wise. It's wise to, you know, match up, they're good at making the money, to match up their money with the needs, whatever. That's wise. I'm not against that. I'm all for that. I like to do more of that, as a matter of fact. If you got connections, let me know. But, uh, <laughs> but see, here, here's what happened, and this was not good or wise or godly. All of a sudden, I felt, and I didn't think of this consciously, but all of a sudden, I want to exit this conversation, and I want to enter that conversation. It's like, I, I'm, I'm like getting impatient with this lady. It's like, okay, can you talk a little faster? Like, uh, try to fill in the words. And she's like, well, then she, and, and I, I'm trying to get out of this thing because I'm thinking, here's this person. They're visiting my church. I don't know why they're visiting my church, but maybe they like our church. Maybe there's something I can do to, you know, build a relationship there or whatever. This is important. And all of a sudden, this is not so important. I felt God put a check in my spirit that basically said this. Uh, don't you go dissing my daughter. Don't you go dissing my daughter. What she's got to say is every bit as important as what that guy's got to say. And if that guy's really working for me. He'll be around. He'll, he'll wait. You know, you, you pay attention uh, to my daughter. You see, that's the thing I'm talking about. We, we have this instinctive way of, of deciding who is important and who's not important. We, we, we categorize. We file. 
we stereotype, we, 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 we judge. We're eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Who benefits us and who doesn't benefit us? One's important, one's not important. One's rich, one's poor. You know, uh, one's on our side, one's not on our side. Uh, one's smart, one's not smart. This person's Christian, that person's not Christian. Or this person's a true Christian, that person's not a true Christian. That's one of religion's favorite categorizations. We, we, we file people, male, female, black, white, Hispanic, Latino, Native American, important, not important, gifted, not gifted. They got potential. They got, they don't have potential. But what we got to see is that in the kingdom of God, every one of those distinctions we could possibly make have been rendered absolutely obsolete, irrelevant. Think of it this way. In the first century, Mary, little Mary, in that little, that little nobody from nowhere, she's not on anyone's chart. She's not on any important chart. She doesn't make the criteria on anybody's scale. In the first century, you walk into a room and, and here's little Mary sitting in one corner and over here you got the big shots, you got the Caiaphas, you got the Herod, you got the Pilate, you got the Caesar Augustus, you got Philo of Alexandria. Who are you going to talk to? Who's going to get your attention? Who's going to get your time? Instinctively, we'd all go over to Herod and the important people. And little Mary, who's well, Mary? That's the most common name on the planet. But surprise, surprise, surprise. Who does God choose to be the bearer of the Son of God? Who does God choose to do the single most important task that's ever been done in, in, in human history? Well, it turns out to be Mary. What do you know? Uh, and, now, and now, knowing that, now who are you going to pay attention to? Now who all of a sudden got your eye? I tell you what, today if I walk into a room and I see Mary uh, over there and Herod and all those other guys over there, forget them. They're losers. Here, here's Mary. She's the important one now, you know? Uh, this is the one who got the award, who, who was favored by God to uh, bring in God's incarnate presence into this world. Uh, put that in your pipe and smoke it. What does that do? It just turns everything upside down. It means that all, you know, you, we can, can't assess things in terms of our criteria for who's important for, or who's not because God's up to a totally new thing. In the first century, as much as today, you know, they had all their categorizations. They had their rich and poor. They had Jew and Gentile. That was really important. And then they had male and female. That was a major important distinction. And then they had old and young, important distinction. And then they had social status. That was an important distinction. And when the revolution comes, all that is completely undermined. The first sermon ever preached in the Christian era, in the revolution era, was done by Peter on the day of Pentecost. And he stands up and he says this, as the Holy Spirit was poured out, God poured out his spirit. And here's what happens. He says in Acts chapter 2, in the last days, he's quoting a prophecy here. Last days just means in the last chapter of history. In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Ho, 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 stop there. Uh, Jews, uh, you know, you've been kind of looking down on these Gentiles for a long time, despising the Canaanites, can't stand the Samaritans. Well, you know what, my spirit, <laughs> sorry, but it's going to be poured out on all flesh, so you better get used to having your arm around them because you're going to become best buddies in the kingdom. That old distinction that you made is now obsolete. And then he goes on, he says, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your sons, no, it's not, sons isn't that surprising, but daughters? See, in the first century, when a father thinks about his daughter, the, 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 what she's mainly thinking about is how much is it going to cost me to get her off my hands and give her to another guy? Uh, what dowry do I have to pray, pay, play? They got no status in the ancient world. All of a sudden, when my spirit comes forth, your sons and your daughters are going to be prophesying. 
That means speaking the word of God boldly. That means speaking under the anointing. It's not just about telling the future. It's about proclaiming what is true in the present. And he's saying, those little daughters of yours, fathers, you get used to listening to those 10, 12-year-old daughters of yours. Because when the spirit of God comes, you know what? I'm going to be putting some, putting some pretty good stuff in their mouth. They're going to be speaking some truth. And, 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 and so far as they're speaking prophetically, you're under their authority. Now, that's a real twist. Uh, fathers, pay attention to your daughters. Sometimes they might be speaking things that are authoritative in your life. And your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Don't write off those old folks. God still can talk through them. They got a role to play in the kingdoms. And then, in the kingdom, and then get this. Even upon my slaves, both men and women, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Nobody is lower on the totem pole of social status than a female slave. To be a woman was already to be way down there, but to be a female slave was to be at the very, very bottom. And here the Lord says, you know what? Here's how, here's how upside down this kingdom is going to be. When the Spirit of God is poured out and that starts moving in people's lives, all flesh, men and women, sons and daughters, and even the slaves, even the female slaves, are going to be speaking prophetically, going to be declaring the Word of God. So you landowners who think that you're so high and mighty and, and you got these people working for you, when it comes to the kingdom, all bets are off. You're not in Kansas anymore. You're in Alice in Wonderland. And now you better prepare to listen to that female slave, and she's going to speak an authoritative word in your life. The whole master-slave thing is all done with in the kingdom of God. Praise God. The playing field's been leveled. What blows my mind is that you still got people out there that say that women can't speak the authoritative word of God. <laughs> You know, not only can women speak the authoritative prophetic word of God, female slaves in the first century can do it, and therefore all women can do it. Praise God for that one. Ah, amen. Uh, amen. All the distinctions are gone. You know, it's like this. Out in the world, the world in its silliness, we assign different roles to different people, and some are important, some aren't important. We all wear costumes out there. Somebody wears the costume of President of the United States. Another one wears the costume of tomato picker. That's fine. That's the way the world runs. You know, you, you need both. Um, but when we, when we enter this odd revolutionary kingdom, all of a sudden we, we're to take the costumes off. And understand that, that, that when you strip all the veneer off, whether you're the president of the United States or whether you're a tomato picker, whether you got this gift or that gift, you know what? We're all sinners saved by grace. And that has a real equalizing effect. We all are robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and, and that means that we all wear the same clothes, we all have the same crown, we're all robed in Christ, and no other distinction matters. Here's what Paul says in one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible, Galatians chapter 3. He says, so in, G in Christ Jesus, you are children of God through faith. See, the difference between being a child of God and not a child of God is about a trillion times more important than the difference between being the president of the United States and a tomato picker. <laughs> so if you're all the ch children of God, it's really silly to even pay attention to any other distinctions that might distinguish you. And then he goes on to say, there is, therefore, because of this, because you're clothed in Jesus Christ, give him, uh, for all of you who are baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. That's part of what uh, a baptism does is it symbolizes being enveloped in Christ. And if you've, you've, you've put on Christ, that's the clothes you wear. And because 
You wear Jesus Christ. There is now neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. It's done. Neither male nor female. That, that, that distinction is done. Uh, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. Praise God. Praise God. Two questions here. It's just this. Do you really believe? Do you really believe? Do you, did you believe God, God's word in this radical kingdom about you individually? Or do you believe the social conditioning and the past experience and all, all the other things that form your identity? Uh, do you believe what God says about you is true? And are you willing to say yes? According to your will, let it be done. Secondly, do we really see each other as we are in Christ, according to the upside-down, topsy-turvy, front-is-back, high-is-low kind of categories of the kingdom of God. Do we, really, do we really live that out? Because what it means is that we're all royalty. We're all royalty, saved royalty, cleansed royalty, royalty in process, but we're all royalty, and we need to see each other with that. Uh, we're all equal, but we're all equally royal, and we need to treat each other with that kind of dignity. Some here are, are wealthier than others. Some are poorer than others. That's irrelevant. You're royalty. Some are black, and some are white, and some are Native American, and some are Asian, and all those distinctions were robed in Jesus Christ, and, and, and we're all royalty. Uh, some are male, and some are female, and some are old, and some are young, and uh, uh, some are skinny and some are less skinny. And some come from the city and some come from the suburb. And some are religious and some are not religious. And some of us have a real clean past and some of us have a real jaded past. And all those things are utterly, 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 utterly irrelevant in the kingdom of God. They make no difference whatsoever. Amen. Can we see that? In fact, even the various struggles that people are going through. We have got, we got a, a, a thousand different struggles that, that people are involved in. Some struggle with self-righteousness. Got that one. Some struggle with greed. That's a pretty common one in America. You know, some struggle with shame and depression. Some struggle with lust. Some struggle with pornography. Some struggle with homosexuality. Some struggle with their wife. Some struggle with their husband. Some struggle with their kids. Some struggle with low self-image. Some struggle with an overinflated self-image. But you know what? In the leveling effect upside down, Alice in Wonderland, we're not in Kansas kingdom that I'm talking about. There's no room for even ranking any of those. As who's got the lesser, who's got the greater sin, who's got the major struggle, who has the lesser struggle, who's got the deal breaker struggle. No, you know what? We're all, sa we're all sinners saved by grace. That's all you need to know. We're all in process. And because of Jesus Christ, we're all royalty. Uh, we're all in process on this thing, and, and there's no more competition. Who's competing? Uh, we're, we're one in Christ Jesus. Do you believe who God says you are? And are you willing to say yes? You've got a role to play. You've got a role to play. And our job is to help you find that role. But are you willing to say yes? And when we leave here, can we treat each other with royalty? Here's one way I'll, I'll end with this. Uh, a lot of times, one way we make categorization is, oh, here are the people that I know and those are the people I don't know. And I'm comfortable here and I'm not comfortable there. And so that's pretty normal. I mean, you all like to, you got your friends. But, but don't let it determine all that you do out in the gathering area because there's kings and priests all around you. I guarantee you if you were talking to those friends that are safe, if all of a sudden President Bush walked in the door, you would excuse yourself for a moment and say, oh, here's a person I would like to just take their hand. You know, and maybe some of you wouldn't, but you know, a lot of you would. I was just like, whoa. Well, you know what? You got royalty all around you that makes the presidency of the United States look silly. I, it, it, that office, well, that's a nice thing to have, but, but, but we're talking about children of God who are robed with Jesus Christ. 
And so go out of your way and, 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 and meet the royalty. And learn to ignore whatever you see on the outside because it's utterly irrelevant. And just know that you're talking to a child of God. And maybe they're even on process on that one. So what? We're all in process. Just welcome them. Show them that they're glad, you're glad that they're here. Make them feel welcome. Enjoy meeting royalty all around you. Amen. As we close in prayer, I want to say, if you're here this morning and you uh, have never surrendered your life to Christ, you've never joined the kingdom, and you want to find out more about it, uh, at the end of the service, up here to my right, your left, this wonderful lady, uh, would love to explain to you what that's about. Just come up here, spend a few minutes. we got some free literature we want to give you. It's not about being religious. It's about surrendering your life to Christ and joining the revolution. Uh, and also, there'll be a prayer team up here who will uh, be happy to spend time praying with anybody who, wants to, you know, who has some needs in their life. Whatever it is, feel free to come forward right up here at the altar when we're done. But Father, I right now pray in Jesus' name that you sear into our, our minds a kingdom way of looking, a kingdom way of thinking, a kingdom way of perceiving people, a, a kingdom sense of identity, a kingdom sense of importance, a kingdom sense of being a revolutionary, a kingdom sense of being a warrior. And I pray that as we leave this place with that sense of identity, Lord God, we'll be kingdom builders, revolutionaries. We'll treat one another as royalty, Lord God, and ascribe unsurpassable worth to everyone we come in contact with, Lord God. By the power of your spirit, we thank you for taking us who are all in and of ourselves, nobodies from nowhereville, but making us somebodies who abide in Jesus Christ. <laughs> We're somebody somewhere, and the somewhere is in you, and that makes all the difference, and we give you the thanks and the praise. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. amen. God bless you. Go out and build the kingdom.